welcome to a new education newscast episode on our English channel. My name is Christoph Hafner and together with my colleague, co-host and friend Thomas Jenewein, I will be your host today. Good evening, Thomas. Hi, hi everyone. But um, neither you, Thomas, nor myself are the interesting part of this show, at least today, I think, right? So I'm really happy to have our SAP colleague, Karina Edmonds, as special guest today. Hello, Karina. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, great to have you here. And Karina, since a couple of months now, you are SAP's new head of academies and university alliances. So congrats for that first. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. But um, before joining SAP, finally, you did a very exciting journey already. And I was really impressed, to be honest. And you have experienced both academia and business world on a pretty high level. And um, yeah, already as a child, you have been fascinated by technology, as I um, uh, read. And so could you please share a bit of this journey with our audience? Sure. Again, uh, thank you. First, I'd like to say I feel very fortunate because I have had a very um, interesting career path, which has allowed me to work both in industry and academia and actually government as well, uh, U.S. government. And I'm getting ready to continue with that journey. I was invited uh, just recently. So this is hot off the press. I will be joining the uh, National Science Foundation Engineering Advisory Committee. Uh, and so excited about that. So let's see about my journey. I was born in the Dominican Republic, a small island uh, that we share with Haiti in the Caribbean. And uh, was brought to the U.S. by my parents when I was eight and grew up in Rhode Island where I also went to university. I, I chose to, uh, to study mechanical engineering at the University of Rhode Island, where I currently also serve as a board member. Uh, so it's very exciting to go back and, and contribute. After uh, receiving my bachelor's in mechanical engineering, I came across the country to the California Institute of Technology, where I pursued a PhD in aeronautics, thinking I wanted to teach and be a professor. And, but I found my research to be very lonely, and I'm a very uh, extroverted person, and so um, decided that I would go into industry. And so that was uh, my first. Actually, I shouldn't say that I worked all through uh, undergraduate school, as we, as many people do there in Germany. I think SAP has a great vocational program, which I, I love. Um, so was here for graduate, uh, entered the aerospace industry uh, with uh, Northrop Grumman and um, was looking, was supporting an Air Force program during that time, and then moved on to JPL, uh, which is part of NASA. Mm -hmm. uh, J the Jet Proportion Laboratory is managed by Caltech for NASA, and started to started my career in technology transfer, and that is how do we move scientific discoveries from the lab to the marketplace. And one of our greatest um, technology transfer stories is the camera that we all have on our phones, That was CMOS technology that was developed by NASA. They were looking to uh, develop a very low light, low weight, low cost camera to look out into space. And now, of course, it's, it's on all our phones. Another great te technology transfer story I'd like to share is uh, the global positioning system, initially developed by the U.S. government to guide nuclear missiles. And now it guides me to the closest, closest fast food restaurant uh, when I'm on a road trip. And so those are just a couple of examples. After about five years, 
um, between Caltech and JPL. I had the opportunity to join uh, the Department of Energy, where I led the tech transfer function for the department, um, which includes 20 uh, national labs. I should say 17 national labs and, and a couple of production plants. And after three years in Washington, I'm not a political person. I did not feel science was appreciated. And so came back to Caltech um, to lead the corporate partnership function there. And so I worked there with industry to fund research at Caltech. And again, on, on the whole process of commercialization. And in, I guess, maybe three, four years ago, I was recruited by Google to then lead up their global a function for uh, university relations under Google Google Cloud. Um, they had a small um, AI research team, and I worked with faculty. So now I'm at Google working with many universities to identify research of mutual interest and how we could work together. And then, as you mentioned, four months ago, I was fortunate enough to join this great company, and I'm very excited to be here uh, and meeting great colleagues as yourself. So... I know that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. It's it's really impressing. And um, it's really great to have you here in, in our company. Um, so, And it must be um, a great feeling if, if uh, so many things uh, from the companies you and institutions you worked at are really used in everyday life. Or whenever you use your smartphone, you, you recall, ah, The camera and um, yeah, when using GPS. Um, so this must be really a very good feeling finally. And um, when looking back to your career and also considering what you're doing today, um, what do you love most about your job? Great. So you mentioned that. So for me, as I mentioned, initially going to get my PhD to be a professor, you know, when I decided I would go into industry, I felt that if I could not be in the lab, actually doing the nitty-gritty science, the next best thing was to make sure that that science sees the light of day. And so I've always found this career path to be very rewarding in that it ultimately improves people's lives and also that it provides great economic benefit to society, mm -hmm. right? Um, we all pay taxes that some of those taxes go uh, to support research activities. And in a lot of... Um, The way that we get to enjoy those those investments are again through economic development. So I should also mention I I sort of glossed over the fact that I worked also for many years in the entrepreneurial space. How do we support small companies to build and larger companies to infuse new technologies to make better products and services? So ultimately, um, that's what drives me, and ultimately what brought me here to SAP. I was very um, the, our mission statement is very appealing to me to help the world run better and to improve people's lives. And so I look forward to doing that here. Can you describe a little bit um, your mission at SAP with um, academies, university alliances and um, the research uh, that you are doing? So what's the core of your, your mission there? Sure. So it's a very exciting mission. First, um, taking on the university alliances team. At, at SAP uh, to uh, refocus our efforts in working with students and faculty to develop and deliver the you know, most up-to-date curriculum in terms of our tools and our software. Um, the other key part are the academy. So very excited to bring these three teams together, really. In the past, it's the sales academy, 
that has a stellar reputation at SAP and outside of SAP in training sales associates. And our engineering academy, which is fairly new, and uh, within the Engineering Academy, we have several programs, as we do under the Sales Academies as well. We have Sales Academy, pre-sales, and also digital sales. Um, and the Engineering Academy has a couple of programs. It has an architect program, and most recently, they just launched a multi-dimensional managers program, which I actually uh, had the pleasure to join a couple of the kickoff meetings. And, um, and, and so we have those. And now one of the things we're doing is looking, leveraging each other's resources and synergies. So how do we leverage the academy faculty to train some of uh, academic faculty in best practices and in teaching? As you know, now that we've moved to a virtual environment, Mm. the academies have had to pivot and just as faculty have. And so we we feel that this is a, a great opportunity for faculty to deliver more engaging curriculum to the students. What could be more engaging for students to work on real life um, challenges of our customers? And that's another big piece of bringing the customer problems and challenges. The customers benefit from getting a fresh set of eyes looking at these challenges. Um, And the students, of course, also benefit from, again, the engagement level, because, again, who, you know, now you're working on real life problems and, and challenges. I don't like to call them problems, right? But um, challenges that a company may be having. And then, you know, not just for us, for talent development and talent attraction within SAP, but as you know, SAP has a huge ecosystem. And so if we could provide some visibility to the students uh, for, with our customers, that's also a win-win on, on both sides. All right. So, so one question from my side. So you you've seen all these different, let's say, I would say, systems like university, corporations, and so on. So, what do you think? What on the one hand, the universities can learn from from us, but also what we can learn from universities. Sure. Um, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, first, it's important um, while we have a lot of mutual interests. Right. So for for companies and industry, right, we we want trained students, well, well trained students. So uh, that's that's one number one um, attraction. And then for universities, they also want to be relevant and work with companies and solve and be part of, you know, these real life um, challenges. Right. Um, They don't want to go off and kind of work in a dark room and and provide solutions to problems that don't exist. So I think industry does a great job in influence the types of, of problems and technologies that are needed, right? And um, But some of the things to understand, some of the differences are that, um, for instance, companies typically like a level of confidentiality that's just not available to universities. You know, universities mostly usually under law and under the funding that they receive must publish their research. And that is what universities do publish academic scholarly research. Um, and so, you know, there are ways to have a heads up or to remove any kind of company confidentiality, um, informa- confidential information. So that's that's an area. Another area that I have seen um, where things get hung up on agreements are in the intellectual property space. So mm-hmm. often, at, at least I know in the U.S., companies would want an, ex- uh, they would want the university to assign the patent to the company. Well, you can't you can't do that under the law by Dole, which enables company uh, universities to license to industry. But 
you can structure the license agreement in such a way that effectively it's like an assignment. So you give them exclusive rights. They have the right to pursue infringement. And so I think everybody just has to be aware of the limitations on each part. Another area is uh, typically, obviously, companies move at a much faster pace than universities. And so just understanding and creating uh, reasonable timelines for the delivery of, you know, if there are deliverables uh, within the agreement that uh, is done in a thoughtful way. And so I know from from the past, so like uh, you somehow can meet in the middle also like like the company, like uh, us, we can sponsor, for example, PhD uh, students, for example, so they they do research at the company. So is this something what we probably also do or? Yes, absolutely. And that's a great point. And I mentioned, you know, the attraction of having trained students and, um, you know, as that early talent for the company. But another big part in a lot of the work that I've done in the past is on the research side. You know, um, universities can save companies a lot of money and time by you know, the, the resources that they have, the uh, equipment that might be available, right? So a company may not have to do a big investment in an area that they're looking to get into. So yeah, and, and research is a big part of that. We currently do fund a number of PhD students at SAP, but that, uh, you know, uh, in the past, I would, I would say, I would look at students as the best tech transfer vehicle. You know, I, I have a slide when I give uh, tech transfer presentations of all the different ways that you can transfer technologies and um, students are, are number one. It's that moving truck that takes a student from the university to their first company. And so, yes, uh, whether we fund the there's two ways that that happens with a Ph.D. student. We can either fund them at the university and they do their research at the universities. They could do the research at the company at SAP or there's a combination. So, yeah, that's definitely a, a great opportunity there to uh, develop technologies jointly with a professor. And uh, just out of interest, so could you share some of the topics? Probably it's the uh, hot topics or it's machine learning, crypto, or perhaps even things far away like this nano computing or stuff like that? Or Yeah, so um, that's, that's going to change. And the team currently at SAP that focuses on the research topic is the ICN the Innovation Center Network. And so we're working closely with them uh, uh, on how we can scale these partnerships. We also have different teams at SAP that fund students. So one of, the, one of my projects is um, to try to capture all the research projects. Um, in Germany, we have a, a program for publicly funded projects as well. And those are jointly with universities. So we're in the process of, of capturing all the research that's currently happening and providing more visibility. And how do we make sure that everyone knows of the research results? Um, so, yeah. So in terms of the topics, you, you know, you mentioned some of them. But obviously, uh, security is top of mind. Cybersecurity is always of interest. Um quantum and, and AI uh, and a couple of others. But this is something that we work closely with the business units and make sure that we're closely aligned because these topics can change year to year. And perhaps so you have been at such, let's say, yeah, interesting companies or very well-known brands who do a lot of great stuff like NASA or Google. So what what kind of things did you learn there? So what are your learnings but, but you now could, could leverage? Sure. So, you know, at the heart of everything that I have done, and I have worked in many areas, and uh, I've sort of become a jack of all trades and an expert in none, 
But at the heart of every company that I've worked with and every job that I've held, it's always about relationships and building relationships and being the connector. Um, for me, uh, most most uh, recently, it's you know between the science and the people, but also just within the people, I've learned not to take things for granted. You know, I had, uh, for instance, when I first joined Google, I, I looked to see who was working with universities, you know, and then I would find teams that were not talking to each other, but we both maybe had projects at, at the same university. And how do we capture that and leverage that? That's sort of what I my, my greatest learning, I feel, and sort of across the board, uh, obviously, different cultures and different focus. So you know, Department of Energy was all about energy uh, at NASA because I worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is tasked to explore the exp- uh, the robotic exploration of space. And so all things robots, but, you know, even there, the fact that you can have a robot arm that's developed for uh, remote maneuvering and it's now being used for surgical um, procedures, you know. Uh, so for me, that that brings me a lot of joy. At Google, you know, their mission was to organize the world's information. And again, uh, obviously a very uh, well-known and and loved brand. Um, And how do we do that? How do we bring information to people? So again, it's, but at the heart of it, I will say it's uh, relationships and making connections. So the universal topics, which always make success, right? Like communication, how to manage interface, how to lead influence and so on. Maybe one one quick question. Yeah, but when you were talking about um, different cultures and different departments, for me it would be very interesting to understand maybe a little bit more. Um, what's your feeling about the different cultures or ideas on um, yeah on science in, for example, the US and Europe or other parts of the world? Um, based on your experience, do they all speak the same language? So the same language of science, finally. Or um, do you see there are different cultures and of yeah how to explore new things and how to work? Or is it really one lingua franca, for example? Yeah, well, I think definitely science is its own language, right? And I think at the heart of any scientist, they want to make improve people's lives, make you know, life easier for people. They, I find that uh, because a lot of my work has been to support faculty, I find that they're mostly driven by, um, you know, their research is driven to, to make life better, to improve the world, right? And you can't do that if, if you don't share your science and people don't know about it. So I do think that that's somewhat universal across countries, right? If you are developing and working on on a scientific discovery, you want to make sure that that discovery sees the light of day. I do have to say some of my most challenging uh, discussions were when I was at the Jet Proportion Laboratory, because what happens is it's very expensive, this process of taking technology from the lab to the marketplace is expensive. And you only do it if there's a market for this technology. So as you can imagine, some of the things that were developed at JPL, because, you know, for Mars may only be viable on Mars. And I would have to explain to the scientists that um, the decision not to not to patent their technology is not based on the merit of the science, but on the marketplace, because it Every uh, patents are very expensive, and you don't want to file for a patent unless uh, you can 
generate income from that patent. And also people have a misconception about patents that they give you the right to do something and they actually give you the right to exclude others from uh, practicing that invention, which means that just because you have a patent on one piece of the technology, you could be infringing on somebody else's. So sorry, I, I sort of uh, went a little bit off topic there, but that's um, just to say some of of the things that, um, you know, get learned and that I've, I've had to deal with. But yeah, in the universal language. So yeah, on the scientific level, I believe scientists in their hearts of hearts want to improve uh, the world and and want to make an impact. And that is why they are driven to solve a problem. Um, in terms of the company, I think some companies are different in terms of what the technology is being used for. And what, you know, for instance, NASA was actually founded and it's in their um, mission statement that um, to transfer technologies out. So as a result, they have a very big focus on transferring technologies out. When I went to the Department of Energy, it was very different. They were actually developed uh, for um, to address, you know, very top secret activity and um, and have a big area on, on nuclear developments. And so they had a very different focus in terms of keeping the technologies uh, in. And so there was a lot more education that had to be done and in um, changing of minds. Like, no, these are you know clean energy technology. And while our roots were in secrecy and not sharing this this research, we had to kind of change the focus uh, for that. So I, I would say those those are different. To be honest, at Google, I was surprised they they're as big as any university in terms of the number of researchers that they have. But um, you know they were very open with publishing research. And I can tell you from colleagues that say at Amazon and not, again, to disparage any other company, they're just not as open. So some companies have a much more open culture. Also, what I've heard from Apple as well, like they have a, a much more closed culture of research. Yeah, Karina. So, so in my experience, so universities and corporations still, let's say, on the overall level, they have different reinforcement systems somehow. Also, like at the university, you need to publish uh, academic studies in a, a company, although perhaps the mission is very, uh, let's say, make the world run better. In the end, you need to make money. So you need mm -hmm. to grow and uh, have a good profit margin and so on. So, so that quite different systems. So how can we bring those closer together that they meet and have a mutual interest? Is this this uh, tech transfer where you have mutual interest or, or what, uh, what, what can, can be done there? Yeah, you bring up a great point and something that I've seen change and even in my time uh, in technology transfer. So for instance, when I first um, started at Caltech, if a professor was interested in, um, you know, industry type research or startups, They were looked down upon and, and, and maybe thought to not be interested in purely scholarly scientific research. And that has changed so much. So some of the ways that I've seen it change, um, universities are changing the way that they look at tenure. So in the past, it was just about your publications. We Most universities now consider patents also as a measure um, they also consider funding, uh, industry funding. You know, before it was just how many grants did you win from, say, a, a funding agency. But now the uh, the dollars that you bring. Um, now there's uh, many universities where have the faculty have uh, industry engagements, whether it's they're working part time for a company or they have their own startups. 
So I do see that changing a lot. And and the other way, um, I do think always companies have allowed their employees to teach classes. I know that's done here. And I did that myself. I actually taught the community college here in California. So, and it's more and more needed. I saw this uh, in my previous job in the area of computer science because it is such a lucrative career. A lot of PhDs are um, not necessarily choosing academia and they go to industry. And that's left uh, a great um, you know, hole in, in, in teaching for computer science. And especially for, you know, second tier schools that don't have a strong computer science department. And so I feel um, when companies can allow their employees to teach, um, and I believe at Google, they had a faculty in residence where even for a whole semester, you would have employees who could go and teach a class at a university. So I do, you know, in, in that area. So those are some of the ways that I feel and then on the company side, you know, this is something I'm working at now. I would love to have more of my colleagues come and give lectures at universities. And I would like to think that they're being supported by their manager to do that because it's important for our, our early talent to see and be exposed to our colleagues in different um, technical areas. Yeah, great. Good points. Uh, and honestly, as SAP employees, as I, I, for example, I every year I do... For example, I support uh, master or bachelor thesis, but I don't know any official rules or so. I just do it because I think it's interesting uh, or it helps also the students. But I think that, that definitely helps, uh, let's say, uh, <laughs> to have more transparency. And do you have any other tips, let's say, what companies could do, um, like out of your experience or what you just envision? just to bring those two uh, better together, like academia and uh, corporations? Yeah, so many schools uh, will have capstone projects that the students participate in. They also have summer projects. Uh, I am part of the board at uh, UCLA for um, IPAMP, which is the Institute for Pure and Applied Mathematics. So they have, um, it's called RIPS. They have a summer program where companies can fund a student. It's relatively inexpensive. It's like $15,000 for the summer. And they will fund um, student research And it could be a topic that is introduced by the company. Uh, those are, you know, uh, obviously an easy way, of course, through our internship programs mm -hmm. and mentoring, having our employees um, teach courses, be guest lecturers, which, again, SAP um, does support. But I had heard at times, you know, again, I haven't seen it. I'd heard in the past maybe uh, some employees may not have felt supported by their manager to take time to do that. And, um, you know, this week we just had a, a all hands with our, our CEO, uh, Christian Klein, who clearly um, articulated his support for um, bringing in early talent and for us to bring in the, the best and the brightest. We need everybody on board and we're going to need everyone's support to reach out and, um, and again, service mentors, um, help deliver seminars and just um, talk about their experiences and their jobs at SAP. Uh, one of the great things about joining SAP for me in the past, I have mostly supported um, the STEM, the, you know, science, engineering, computer science areas, but having joined SAP and now overlook overseeing the academies, we have great opportunities for every major, for marketing, for business, supply chain management. 
So, which is very interesting for me. And I really welcome the opportunity again to work with a, a broader set of uh, students and disciplines at the universities. As the guiding topic of this podcast is somehow learning and education. Um, could you tell us a bit more about yeah, your vision of learning in the future? So uh, what is the difference? Where do we go to in, in terms of learning? Sure. So this is a very timely question given recent events and announcement, not just from, from SAP, but also under um, this global pandemic that we find ourselves under. So I think everybody agrees that the future of learning looks very differently, where in the past I felt like you would go to class. It's, it's sort of flipped a bit in that you would go to class. The learning now happens outside of the classroom, right? Uh, before you would um, go into the class and have a lecture, and then you would go and you practice. You maybe have homework or some project. And now um, we're coming back together for more project-based learning. So I think that's that's going to be a, a big difference. I also see great opportunity for us. Um, again, I think delivering curriculum in a virtual environment has a lot of challenges, including making the material engaging enough to keep the attention of these students, right? And so some of the things I mentioned earlier, um, having access to real world problems and challenges that we know exist from our customer base and creating projects and creating challenges around those, I think it's going to be interesting for, for us and, um, and for faculty as well, uh, that we can now deliver curriculum across many time zones and to, to many different cultures. So I do see opportunities. And, and as I mentioned, I think it's, it's going to change. And even within our own company, as you know, we recently have the uh, One Learning, uh, the learning organization that has been brought together under Max Wessel uh, for our own employees and our own uh, colleagues, right, of upscaling. So um, again, and, and part of that is the way of the world and the way things are, are going And are going to be post-COVID. I just, you know, obviously we're all hoping for um, a vaccine soon. But even with that vaccine, I think uh, that we some things have been proven during this time. And so I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before. So it's it's about moving forward and, and how we learn. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes, you know, students always ask me, what should I learn? What should I, you know, what's what are the jobs of the future, which none of us know, of course, we don't have a crystal ball. But what I say always is we all have to learn to learn. Yeah, that's that's the new model, like just learn to learn. For me, I've always embraced learning and uh, new opportunities. Um, and so but I think now we're all going to be forced to just be a little more open. Yeah, that's that's really great, and I think um, staying curious is is also a very important thing that and engages you in in learning all the time. So, yeah, thank you for sharing this. Um, now, I think Thomas, we could come to our more personal part of the show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's your part. All right. Yeah. Also, I think this is always an interesting question because uh, I hope also the listeners, but also Christopher and me, we always learn new things. And uh, so the, the question, uh, so everyone has a to-do list, yeah, or many to-dos, uh, uh, actions, but do you also have a to-learn list? So what, what is on your to-learn list this year? Sure. And I would love to answer that. I would like to also say that recently I've been encouraging people to do a have-done list. 
you know, during COVID, you know, we all get discouraged and feeling like we're not being as productive. And so I've been encouraging people to also keep a a have done list. So yes, um, definitely to learn list. You know, every year, um, typically for my birthday, I always challenge myself to to pick up a new skill. And uh, last year um, it was tango. And because of COVID, that has changed. Um, and so now I'm looking to maybe pick up golf. So I am I'm learning to golf. Uh, so that's that's kind of my uh, my next learning experience, <laughs> which is COVID safe. Yeah, so that changed. And what was your latest memorable or real real learning experience, which was uh, really uh, interesting for you? You know, it's it's always different. Some learned via video. It doesn't need to be a formal learning experience. Uh, can you share that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have three girls. Um, and so every day for me, I'm challenged to learn something new. Uh, but uh, professionally, I did, uh, again, I think I mentioned earlier, I sat in uh, this multi-dimensional manager's course that was recently rolled out of the, the engineering um, academy. And I was really impressed on the emphasis on empathy, which is not a word that I had traditionally linked to leadership. Uh, and so leadership is looking very different post-COVID. So I think we all have a lot of learning to do um, in terms of being more compassionate, giving and understanding and sort of leading with empathy. And so to me, that's kind of been a, a super interesting um, and meaningful lesson, uh, learning experience that I've had. Okay, thanks. And and um, what sources do you use to learn? So do you have favorite podcasts? Do you have some books what you could recommend on the blogs or so? Sure. So uh, not to be too self-promoting, but I do like our Work Matters podcast that we have here. Um, I have a, a to-learn list, too. I know there's, there's there's a podcast called Emotional Badass that I've heard a lot of good things about. <laughs> In terms of books, I recently read um, Dare to Lead by Renee, Renee Brown, which is, um, you know, great advice. And then uh, from my own colleague, Feroz, uh, a great writer, I'm reading Gifted, which um, is stories about people with different disabilities and so very inspiring. Um, on the more uh, racial justice side, I've been looking at Educated, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And uh, yeah, so I have a, a list of, of reading I, I like to do. Recently also heard a lot of great things about a little book called Small Great Things by Judy Picoult. Um, and I can send you these the, the names. Great. Yeah, it's always great. We will share this in the show notes. So we hope that uh, all the listeners find those inspirational. So I think we're coming to the end. So thanks so much for sharing. So do you have anything more to share what we perhaps forgot to ask? Uh, we didn't ask any questions, Karina. Yeah, no, just um, thank you for, for having me. Always, uh, I continue to uh, enjoy meeting a lot of the colleagues, my colleagues. I will say that the most uh, difficult thing about having joined a new company in the middle of a, a global pandemic is um, not have had the opportunity to, to meet everyone in person. So I'm super eager to uh, fly out and uh, when we're able to do so safely and meet everyone. So. And perhaps just one question, where can people find out more about you if they're interested? Perhaps follow you on LinkedIn or do you have any, also uh, according to your work, any websites that you could share? 
Yes. Um, so thanks for the challenge. I, I do need a website. I, I am on LinkedIn and I am on Twitter. It's Dr. Karina uh, E. Uh, Dr. underscore Karina E. And I, again, I can I can share those with you as well. But yeah, for now, Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to share that. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks so much, dear listeners, for taking the time. Thanks, Karina, for taking the time also. And yeah, uh, I hope, uh, dear listeners, you found that interesting. Please uh, double check uh, the links or follow Karina to find out more. So yeah, I think we're coming to an end. Thanks so much again. Yeah. Thank you both. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and uh, really great insights. Thank you. Right. Bye. Thanks.